Morning, everyone. Over the last several weeks here at Monty, we've been studying the book of Acts. And uh, I think it's been a huge blessing for us. Um, certainly, um, I think I get extra blessing because any, any, as anyone who um, prepares a message to share, uh, you spend that extra time. So it helps you not only get more from what you're studying yourself, but also listen more carefully to the um, messages from the week before, etc. So as I've been driving around in my work car, I've had the um, audio Bible playing in the background, um, listening to the book of Acts and, and listening to all of Paul's letters. Uh, and we sang earlier in a song about the sacred flame and I really feel that God's um, put a fire in my heart as I've been studying this um, content in Acts, studying what Paul wrote in his letters. So if a big spotlight's been put on my own heart, I hope I can get my torch out and shine a little bit on yours as well this morning. Um, I've certainly been getting a sense that the Holy Spirit's um, very much working through this Acts series. I think it's a great series um, for us as a church. Anyone else agree? Anyone else been finding Acts, um, our time in Acts good? Well, this morning in Acts chapter 9, uh, we're looking at one of the most significant um, conversion accounts in the history of Christianity, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, uh, commonly known by his Roman nickname of Paul. Why is this conversion so significant? In the first instance, his conversion is dramatic. Um, the radical change in this man's life was witnessed by thousands, if not tens of thousands, of his contemporaries, of other believers, of his uh, Jewish colleagues. The life he lived as a follower of Jesus is one of the greatest examples still to us to this day of a sinful man living in surrender to God. We have the great example of Jesus in his perfection. Um, beyond that blessing, we also have the blessing of the account of Paul and others' uh, lives in the New Testament that we can be encouraged by. And of course, the Holy Spirit speaks powerfully through the words and writings of Paul. Uh, he's responsible for writing around half of the New Testament um, through the Spirit in his life. So today we find out what changed. Of course, those earlier passages that we had read for us were all written by Paul. Uh, and they each gave us a glimpse of like Paul's life before his conversion and after. So as we study uh, Acts chapter 9 today, I want you to be aware there's also um, two other places in Acts where the conversion of Paul is discussed, Acts chapter 22 and 26. Each of those accounts gives us different camera angles, a bit, bit more information, a bit more insight into the conversion of Paul. So we'll touch on some of those extra insights as we go through. I just want to read, if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Um, I've left some notes on the back table. You don't need them as we go through the message this morning, but um, some of you might be interested um, to take those notes home with you. I've put one page there about Paul's life uh, before his conversion uh, and some other notes as well. But in Acts chapter 26, one of the other conversion accounts of, of Saul or Paul, we read this in verse 4. The Jewish people all know the way that I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And down in verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do 
all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Now if you turn turn with me back to Acts chapter 9, our passage for today. We'll just read through Acts chapter 9 and uh, discuss it as we go. Starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Paul was completely devoted to the destruction and persecution of the church. Later in this same chapter, it says that he wreaked havoc on the church. In Acts 26, we saw Paul say about his own conduct that he was obsessed. And here we read that Paul was breathing out murderous threats. It's as if his very life's breath is about destroying the church. This is his all-consuming focus. He was a violent man against both men and women. In a time where women may have been treated with uh, special protection and men were the ones that went out to fight, uh, Paul didn't spare men or women. women. He dragged them from their homes, he beat them, he flogged them, he killed them. If we quickly consider the previous chapters, Paul is from Tarsus in Cilicia and that group is specifically named as The Jews from Cilicia were those who took task to Stephen, debating with him, arguing with him. Highly likely that Paul was one of those Cilician Jews opposing Stephen and then um, agreeing to and witnessing his stoning death. And it would appear now that he's become the ringleader of opposition to the disciples. From Philippians 3, we see that Paul was a self-righteous man. He trusted in his purebred Jewish heritage Hebrew of Hebrews, in a time when people didn't know their ancestry, he knew that he was from the tribe of Benjamin and his father was a Pharisee. He trusted in his exceptional knowledge of the Old Testament. He'd been trained from a young age at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest first century rabbis. Paul thought he needed to protect the faith from what he ignorantly saw as a great threat to the tradition of his fathers. If you turn to chapter 8, Verse 1 for a moment. You see that Paul's already displaced almost every single Christian in Jerusalem. We're talking thousands and thousands of Christians have been pushed out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria by this uh, Saul of Tarsus and his um, elite persecution team going from house to house. Um, It's hard to imagine the scale of this persecution just reading about it, but it was phenomenal possibly even a quarter of the population of Jerusalem displaced. And here we see Paul 
head held high, self-righteously marching towards Damascus in a rage against Jesus of Nazareth and anyone who dares to follow him. If we now read verse 3 to 9 together, chapter 9. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This section of the passage is quite brief compared to the other accounts in chapter 22 and 26. So I just want to look across all three accounts um, to show you some of the extra bits of insight that we get from these other passages that give us a bit of a richer pa- um, picture of this the part of the um, passage. So the first insight we get is that Jesus actually speaks to Paul in Aramaic. Aramaic was the national language of Judea in Paul's day. Aramaic was symbolic of protecting Jewish culture from the oppression of uh, Roman occupation, from the influence of the Greeks, the Hellenistic Um, cultural influence and also in essence it was their heart language you see elsewhere in the book of Acts when Paul's in front of a crazy riding crowd and he starts speaking Aramaic they just fall quiet instantly great respect for this heart language and to me um, Paul knew several languages so why did Jesus speak to him in Aramaic to me it speaks and demonstrates of Christ's desire to speak straight into the religious and personal heart of Paul the second insight we get from comparing the three passages is that when Jesus speaks to Paul he says why do you persecute me it is hard for you to kick against the goads a goad is a sharp stick um, used to guide oxen uh, it often had a sharp metal point on it Um, If the goad was used on the ox, but the ox kicked back, um, of course the ox was in a worse place than before it kicked. Uh, And so in common in Greek um, literature, there's quite a number of historical references to this phrase, kick against the goads. Um, But the concept was that if you fight against a superior authority to yourself, you've got a very futile fight. So why does Jesus say this to Paul? Um, I wonder if these words may have reminded Paul of his teacher Gamaliel standing up in the Sanhedrin saying, men, if you fight against these people, um, you might find yourselves fighting against God. If, if this movement is of God, you are fighting a futile fight. Paul didn't take Gamaliel's advice. He felt it necessary to uh, persecute these people with all his might. But here Jesus says, you're up against the superior authority, Paul. You need to stop kicking against the goads. And the third insight that we get is that Jesus introduces himself to Paul in Acts 22 as Jesus of Nazareth. There's no risk of mistaken identity here. In Acts 22, Paul says his obsession was to blaspheme and oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This encounter between Jesus and Saul is a direct head-to-head encounter between the risen, exalted and glorified Son of God 
the Lord Jesus Christ and the man who has been leading the attack against his people, the church. And a few other comments of this section. Um, We find that Paul and all his companions all fell to the ground with the brilliance of Christ's glory blazing all around them. In In chapter 26 it says it was brighter than the sun. And when Paul gets up, he's completely blind. So instead of marching into Damascus now as a VIP, bent on destruction, marching into the to the uh, synagogues with the letter from the chief priest, he's led humbly by the hand, uh, blind, into Damascus and left to wait in complete reliance on God for what for what's coming next. So we find Paul is obedient. He goes in um, as per Jesus' instructions. He goes into Damascus uh, and waits further instructions. I can only imagine how difficult those three days were for Paul. No sight, no food, no drink. I get the impression that there was plenty of undistracted time for Paul, um, for prayer, for meditation. Perhaps a soul-searching re-evaluation of all his carefully memorised Bible knowledge. Now seeing it all in the new revelation of Christ as Saviour and Messiah King. And I, I suspect also a deep sense of horror guilt and shame, possibly repentance for what he'd done to God's people. How devastating to realise the evil of what he'd been doing in ignorance and unbelief. Next we come to to, uh, verse 10. Let's read that together. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus called named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I love these verses about Ananias. Um, Ananias was a devout Jew who had become a follower of Jesus. Uh, But the local believers in Damascus have received advance notice that Paul is coming to town and know plenty about his character. Perhaps uh, Joseph of Arimathea, also in the Sanhedrin, or Nicodemus, one of these inside sources, or perhaps even just some of the early Christians that fled under Saul's persecution, have come through town and let let them know in no uncertain terms that Paul is on his way um, and bent on their destruction. So when the Lord asks him to go visit, his immediate response is hesitation. God, just in case you're not aware... This guy's a bad egg. But just in case he was thinking of delegating the task to some fresh disciple who doesn't yet know about Saul, 
God says, oh, and by the way, he's expecting someone called Ananias. You're out of luck. Um, It would seem pretty clear that Ananias here is really concerned about risking his life. Fair enough, really. Um, Knowing Saul has displaced several thousand disciples from Jerusalem, his door is not really the one you want to knock on and say, excuse me, Jesus of Nazareth sent me here with a word for Saul. God is sending him on a healing mission to a well-established Christian killer. But the Lord does reassure him further by telling him that Paul has been chosen to be a special and key witness for God to send out the the good news of Jesus to not only uh, the Jews but the Gentiles and and, uh, those in authority over the known world. And of course the rest is history. Uh, This otherwise unknown disciple plays an instrumental role in Paul having his sight restored, receiving the Spirit, and I assume Ananias also baptises Paul. (coughs) By the power of the Holy Spirit, the devil's chief persecutor becomes the gospel's chief promoter. I'll say that again. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the devil's chief persecutor became the gospel's chief promoter. It's such a miracle of God's grace and every time I've been reading this passage I've just been crying because it's just so good to see God's mercy at work. See, Paul's devotion is no longer to the destruction of the church. His devotion is to Christ and to building the church. What a mind-blowing example of the grace and mercy of God or as Paul puts it, of God's grace being poured out abundantly. We saw that in the the passage in 1 Timothy. Paul saw himself as the the chief of sinners who, by God's grace, was a special example of God's ability to save anybody. And so now I want to spend some time thinking about application of this passage. And the first and most obvious application to me of what we've studied today is this question. Uh, In the story of the conversion of, of one of most... Um, of Christianity's most serious and devoted enemies to loving and serving Christ and following Christ and building the church. The question that we can ask to ourselves is, have you committed your life to Jesus, to follow him as a disciple, to be a witness for him? Have you devoted your life to Christ? I think there's two, peeps, two, two camps of people possibly when we talk about... Um, being saved from our sin. Some people think they're too far gone for God to save them or restore them. God can't love me with what I've done. I've sinned too much, too many times. Too many times I've failed. God could never forgive me for what I've done. But the conversion of Paul, once one of Christianity's greatest enemies, his murderous and violent ways, show us that God's love and mercy and light can outshine any human darkness or sin. If you're here today thinking that God can't forgive you for your sin, can't restore you into a um, perfect relationship with him, then see the example of Saul. Uh, See his background. See God saving him, forgiving him. Others think they're good enough already and don't need saving. Just like Paul marching along the Damascus Road with head held high, they're confident, I'm a good person. I've never hurt anybody. I've never done anything too bad. 
I've ticked the right boxes. I go to church, help old ladies cross the road. I've always been a good person, a moral person. The conversion of Paul and his realisation that only Jesus Christ can save us and restore our relationship with God is an example to us as well. If you're sitting here um, with a heart that is self-righteous, that trusts in your own goodness, that thinks you and you alone um, can save yourself. The example of Paul is the example of someone who had every box ticked. He says in Philippians 3, as to the, the, the righteousness that comes through the law, faultless. But he considered all that that was once gained to him as rubbish. And the word is actually just dung. So if you're here not aware that Jesus needs to save you, then you can look at the example of Paul and realise that only Jesus can save you. No one who rejects Christ will ever be saved without him. Perhaps though you've answered yes to the question when I said, have you committed your life to Jesus? You're already a disciple. You're someone that wants to be a witness for Jesus, wants to follow him. You want your life to be devoted to him. Then my challenge to you is the same challenge that I've had to myself uh, almost every day for the last few months. And that is, looking at the radical transformation of Paul, um, has that same radical transformation of the Holy Spirit been at work in your own life? I believe one reason God gives us the book of Acts is so that we can see and know in practical terms what the Holy Spirit can do in a believer's life. So much of the New Testament is um, follow this command or do this command or do this so that. In the book of Acts we don't have that instruction, we just have example after example after example. Why would Paul float around in the ocean for a day and a half? Why would he be beaten, flogged, um, stoned, um, beaten with rods, in constant danger, hungry, thirsty, cold, uh, naked, when he had all the trappings of a well-established, comfortable religious life, respect by all his peers, good occupation? The answer is because Jesus shined into his heart and he saw the glory of Christ. And so my question to you this morning is, are you truly devoted to Jesus Christ? Does your relationship with Jesus define who you are? Does it define what you do? Define what you say. Define how you spend your money. Define how you spend your time. For me, recently answering this question has has meant a lot of um, practical changes. Um, I've been looking to serve my family more willingly and sacrificially. Um, It's meant deleting apps off my phone that were distracting me from worship and devotion. It's meant spending more time in prayer, more time soaking in the word of God. It's meant praying for and having more conversations with my workmates about God. And I don't know about your personal devotion to Christ. I don't know where you are right now. And I don't know what distracts you from being devoted to Christ. For each of you, it it might be different to my journey. Maybe Facebook, maybe entertainment, maybe work or social life. Maybe even your family or your friends. But I just ask you to ask yourself the question, What gets in the way of my intimacy with Christ? What gets in the way of the Holy Spirit doing his work in my heart through the word so that I can be closer to Christ, more aligned to his will, doing what he wants, speaking to the people he wants me to be speaking to?
That's the first question. Um, Are you devoted to Christ? And that's something you can think about and pray about. My second question is, do you have a passion to share Jesus with people who don't know him? Um, I've studied Paul's life a lot in the last month or two, as I said, and I've just been um, listening a lot to the, the audio of his letters and to Acts. And uh, I feel like the Holy Spirit's just set my heart on fire with the truth that um, he's spoken through Paul. The number of times you read about Paul, night and day with tears. Just count the number of times he says, night and days with tears, I pray for you. Night and day with tears, night and day with tears. Paul's not a sterile old theologian. When I was a teenager, I thought, oh, Paul, I just read the text and thought, oh, it's all very... um, high and mighty and theological and hard to understand but as I've engaged more and more with Paul I see him as a heart beating compassionate uh, man who cared so much for the other disciples in the faith but also those who didn't know Christ, so passionate to give everyone an opportunity to know and follow Jesus Paul asked other Christians around him to pray for boldness not because he was always bold, not because he was never afraid, but because he knew he needed to be bold, because he knew he needed to be faithful to tell people about Christ. The other thing is, if you're looking at Paul through the book of Acts, find how many places that he went to where he didn't get threatened with death. There's not many. Generally, he's being moved from city to city as fast as possible by the other disciples because they're trying to kill him. Um, For Paul, telling people about Christ and witnessing to Christ meant everything and was more important than his own life. I don't think you could have had a chat with Paul for more than five minutes without hearing about Jesus Christ. Um, And I wonder if that's true of us, that we're so full of the Holy Spirit and devoted to Christ that it just dominates who we are and what we talk about. How long is it, brothers and sisters, since you personally have told someone about the forgiveness and love in Christ, how long since you've shared with someone how they can be saved? Before we even go to that question, the first question we need to ask is, am I devoted to Christ? Is there something in the way? That could mean I can be a more effective witness for Christ. But after that, asking that question, after removing the barriers in your life that are keeping you from a devoted walk with Christ, there's a lot of people outside these walls that need to know the peace of Christ, that need to know his forgiveness, that need to know his love. I wonder if you could um, close your eyes and bow our heads. If the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you today and you haven't committed your life to Christ but you want to, You can raise your hand. You don't have to, but you can raise your hand. Perhaps you've already given your life to Jesus, but um, studying this passage today, the Holy Spirit's um, provoked you and and pointed the finger at your heart by the example of Paul and uh, his radical transformation. If the Holy Spirit's been asking you to um, and convicting you that you need to be more devoted to Christ, maybe just raise your hand for me.
Thanks. I want to pray for those people and I also want to pray for all of you now. Dearest Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for the power of your Holy Spirit. We're so weak, we're so broken, so in need of your love, so in need of your strengthening. Paul wasn't a super Christian. He was a man who let the Holy Spirit work through him, dying to himself so that the power of your resurrection life could work through him to touch others. He didn't strive in his own strength, but with the strength of the Holy Spirit working in him. Lord, I pray for these um, people here today who have said they want to be more devoted to Christ. And I'm sure there are others who didn't put their hand up, but have still felt your spirit talking to them this morning, Lord, to their heart. Lord, help them to have clarity to identify the things which distract them the barriers to devotion to Christ. Lord, we want to be your witnesses. The harvest is huge. There's so much darkness out in our community, so many hurting people, so many lonely and isolated people. Never been a greater need than for us to be your people working in your world to bring witness to Jesus and his power to transform lives by his grace, by his forgiveness, by the peace that he offers instead of guilt for sin, perfect cleansing, perfect peace. So Lord, help us all as we consider these things. Help us um, as we continue in our studies to act, to be open to what your Holy Spirit wants to do uh, in our church and in us as individuals. And I praise you uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for um, working among us, for caring for your church and for building your church, Father. Thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.